will be in the book of Exodus. We started our series going through the book of Exodus last week, uh, covered the first few verses there, the first seven or eight. Uh, today, this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 1, looking at verses 8 through 22. So if you're looking for that in your Bible, Exodus is the second book. We go at the very beginning with Genesis, get to the end of that, 50 chapters or so, and then you'll end up in Exodus, and we're probably still on the first page there. So Exodus verse 1, or not verse 1, chapter 1, looking at verses 8 through 22 this morning. It says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. That is the chorus to an old African-American spiritual that became popular when American slavery was at its height, just before the Civil War. And wherever you study it, the more you read it, the more you see it in our context, you're going to see that there are actually a lot of parallels between American chattel slavery and the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt. And you can hear in that song, which was sung on repeat, with deep feeling, with tears, that the people who were languishing in slavery were looking for any reprieve that they could find. They want a balm to, to heal them, to soothe them to make them feel better. They need something to make their wounds whole, to heal their sin-sick souls. But as painful as the song is, and as hard a place it is sung from, ultimately, it's a proclamation of hope, the hope that's found in the gospel, that you are wounded, you are not whole. Your soul is sick with sin, but there is a balm for your condition. There is healing to be found. Today's verses, they give a short description of, I think, a similar kind of pain, a similar kind of oppression, slavery, that was felt by the Israelites in Egypt. You could imagine them singing a psalm like this, in hope for deliverance from their slavery, except they didn't have the example of Exodus to point back to because they were living it. They endured suffering and oppression just because of who they were, 
just because of how they were born. And though they didn't have this song to sing, though they didn't yet have the promise of a balm in Gilead, something that's given in Jeremiah, though this slavery is brutal and hard, as we'll see, there's a hope for them as well. And I think if we'll see their oppression clearly, then we'll also be able to more clearly see the remedy for this oppression. We'll have a a greater appreciation for God's deliverance of his people out of this physical slavery. And we'll have a greater appreciation of God's deliverance for his people out of our spiritual slavery as well. So this morning, as we look at these verses, we're going to find three aspects of the oppression of God's people in today's verses. Three aspects of what it looks like for God's people to be oppressed is what we'll be able to see today. And the first aspect of the oppression of God's people that we can see in our text this morning is that God's people are oppressed because of fear. They're oppressed because of fear. Look back at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. We see that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he's the one leading the charge to oppress them, but he's doing that because he's afraid. He fears them, but he fears them out of ignorance. I mentioned that first verse last week. We kind of wrapped up with that, that this new king, this new Pharaoh, he doesn't know Joseph. That's a shorthand way of saying that he doesn't know Joseph's God either. He has no allegiance to these old promises that were made to a God he doesn't worship. He doesn't fear or love God ultimately. The fear he has, though, it's coming from a place of ignorance. I mean, had Pharaoh known anything about the Israelites, about these people who are in his country, in his land, he would have found out that one of the defining traits of these people, one of the defining promises that has made them a people, is that they are going to possess a very specific plot of land, the land of Canaan, which isn't a part of Egypt. That's where they're going to settle. That's where they're eventually going to return to. He's afraid that they're going to overthrow him and take his land, but if he just knew a little bit more about what's going to happen to them, about what they believed about themselves, he would know that when they actually do what they want to do, Egypt's going to be fine. Egypt wouldn't have been overthrown. In fact, Egypt's enemies to the north of them would have been the ones who were overthrown. A little more knowledge, a little more understanding would have made Pharaoh and the Israelites natural allies rather than enemies. And I think that's so often how it works for us, isn't it? We're met with new situations, new people, new places. And because of that unknown, because we don't know what's going on, we jump to fear. We get a new boss. And because we don't know them yet, we assume, okay, I'm going to be the first one that he lays off. We see a decision get made. And because we don't know the particulars of why that decision got made, we jump to fear. And so often, I've found, whenever I do this, if I would just take a breath, if I would just take a beat, if I would ask some questions, if I would find the truth, I end up in a much more rational place, a much less afraid place than I would have been otherwise. Pharaoh was afraid because Pharaoh didn't know enough. And what he feared was both their strength and their number. These people of Israel, he said, they're too many. They're too mighty for us. They're too strong. There's too many of them. And what a testament of God's blessing it is for this people to now be large enough for Pharaoh to fear them. They came to Egypt as one family, 70 descendants. 
And now there are so many of them that Pharaoh is quaking in his boots, afraid of what they're going to do, afraid of the power that they now have because of the blessing of God given to them. Now, Pharaoh's likely exaggerating here, right? It's not like the Israelites actually outnumbered the Egyptians in Egypt. It's not like they were actually so much stronger than the Egyptians there. He's probably exaggerating a little bit. But when you're afraid, those numbers, they start to feel a lot bigger than they actually are. When you're upset, when you're operating from a place of fear, you look around and you think that there's way more enemies than there actually are. That when those two or three people are mad at you, it feels like everybody's mad at you. That when you're meeting just a little bit of opposition, it feels like you're meeting a brick wall that you can't possibly get past. But that's fear talking. And Pharaoh, in his fear, does the thing that so many of us tend to do. He overreacts. He makes an impulsive decision, and in this case, the wrong one. And what's craziest about this is that if he does, is that he does the wrong thing, well, he's so sure that he's doing the right thing. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with him. Let us do the wise thing toward them. Here's a brilliant, smart plan that I have come up with. I know how to deal with the Israelites. This is going to solve all of our problems. Pharaoh's not trying to be wrong. He's not trying to to do the wrong thing. He's not trying to be stupid. He thinks this is the smartest plan he has ever had. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. I've got a plan. I've got a really good idea. But because his focus is on control and the fear of losing that control, that power, the, the fear of what he has no control over, he does the wrong thing while absolutely positive that this is the right thing. He says, these people are too strong. There, there are too many of them to do what I want them to do, so I'll fix that. I'm going to make them weaker. I'm going to make them lesser, smaller in number. I'm going to enforce my control over them so that I won't have to worry about losing the control that I have over them. I mean, Pharaoh's the villain here. He, he's in the wrong. But I know I see myself in that, right? If you're honest, I, I bet you do too. But that doesn't make him sympathetic. We, don't, we aren't supposed to read this and go like, oh man, that Pharaoh guy, he just got just some tough breaks. That poor, poor man. I'm just like him. He's really sympathetic here. That's not what you're supposed to do. It's not supposed to make him sympathetic. It's supposed to make us humble. It's supposed to make us understand that I don't always do the right things for the right reasons. Sometimes, even when I am so sure that I'm right, even when I think, man, I am nailing this. This is the the smartest idea I have come up with. Even in that moment, that is when I could be as wrong as I could possibly be. It might actually be the dumbest plan that I've had yet to do that thing. God's people... They fell into oppression here, not because of anything they've done wrong, not because of any punishment or misstep on their part. They fall into oppression in a really worldly sense because they made a powerful man afraid, because they served another master. They couldn't be controlled. And that reality of God's people in this text breeds fear among the people who think that they're God, among the people who think that they're in control. And that fear leads to oppression for the people of God. And that oppression takes the shape for them, in this text, of a heavy burden. That's the second aspect of the oppression of God's people in today's text. God's people are oppressed by heavy burdens. Look back at verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. 
They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. To make the people weak, to reduce their number, Pharaoh gave them taskmasters, slave drivers to afflict them. And how did they do that? How did they afflict the people? By giving them heavy burdens. By placing too great a weight on their backs, Pharaoh wanted to drive them into the dirt. He wanted them to to strain, to tremble under a load that was too heavy for them to bear. That's how he chose to afflict them. I note this here because Pharaoh's plan is a little strange. Maybe you take a step back and think about it. In fact, in some ways, it seems a little contradictory. I mean, the people are too strong, and there's too many of them, and yet somehow they are able to put taskmasters over them. They're able to place them into slavery. I mean, the, the quickest, the easiest way to get rid of your enemies, if that's your plan, would be just to kill them, right? Straight up genocide. And I mean, he gets there. It takes him some time, but he eventually lands to that place. You know what? Let's just get rid of them. He could have done that. Straightforward genocide. But first, he says, this is really smart. This is the smart part of my plan. We're going to get all this work out of them. We're going to make them work really hard. We're going to give them too much work to do and make them weak in so doing. He wanted to get as much free labor out of them as he could, as slaves. So he enslaves them. And then after they're enslaved, so he's already put taskmasters over them, he's already enslaved them, that's when he decides, you know what, let's have fewer slaves. Let's have less of them. We're getting free work, we're getting it from slaves, and now we want less workers. Wouldn't you want more workers, not less? More work, more free labor, not less? The dots don't always connect here in Pharaoh's very wise very shrewd, very smart plan to deal with the Israelites. But if I can try to explain why he did this, why he landed where he did, why he chose to oppress them in this way, in this fashion, I think it will start to make a little bit more sense. I think there is something particular about being given a job that is too hard that breaks the human spirit particularly. I think there is something special about you being forced to carry something that you can't carry that breaks something in us humans made in the image of God in a particular way. I think there's something about suffering under a way that you're not capable of lifting, which has a specific effect on the human being. God gave us work to do in the Garden of Eden, right? He said, fill the earth and subdue it. Exercise dominion over it. Make the rest of the earth look like this Garden of Eden. He said that that work would be hard and less fruitful, though, when they got thrown out. Once sin entered in, once the fall of man happened, that's when he said, no, you're still going to have to work, but now you're going to have to work hard and it's not going to be as effective. That's the effect of sin in our lives. For you to work really hard and to not get very far. And I think Pharaoh, without knowing it, is really tapping into this here. That he's making them work really hard with things that they aren't capable of doing, and in so doing is making them feel the effects of sin in a particular and special way. He's giving them work to do, and it's too hard. 
It's too much. It's the exile from Eden ramped up to the nth degree. It's a special affliction under the heaviest of burdens. When we have too heavy a burden on our backs, that's when we feel sin the most. That's when we feel our slavery to sin the most. That's when we feel the effects of the fall in our lives the most. When we look around and say, I can't do this, that's when you get to the most broken place that you can be. And whenever we take a step back in the story of the people of Israel and put ourselves into those same similar situations, we're also able to see that it's in that moment that God works in you. It's in that moment when the gospel is made more real for you. It's in that moment when you can see Christ's work for you in removing the burden of the law from your back and placing it on himself. But this affliction that they feel, though it is a heavy burden, we see here also that it can't stop God's plan for his people. It says the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. So Pharaoh's very wise, very shrewd plan to deal with the Israelites, to make them weaker, And to reduce their numbers has the exact opposite effect. It fails miserably. You see, when the people of God are afflicted, as we so often are, God's plan doesn't stop. God's plan doesn't slow down. It's not thwarted by these efforts, by this affliction, by this oppression. And that's been true all throughout church history. It was true in Acts when you read it that the more they are afflicted, the more they grew in strength and in number. It was true for that next generation, that first generation of martyrs. So true for them that Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, famously said that the blood of the martyrs is actually the seed of the church. That the more you kill us, the more of us there will be. The more you try to oppress us, the faster we're going to grow. The more you want God's plan to stop, the stronger it is. When God's people are afflicted, when we're oppressed, it doesn't end God's plan. In line with the Savior who died and brought us to life with his own resurrection, our deaths for God's name and his glory as his people only serve to bring more people to faith in him. The affliction, it doesn't stop God's plan, it fertilizes it. The blood that we shed, the oppression we feel, is actually the fertile ground in which God uses to build up his church, to make it grow and flourish. In this instance, and I think you could rightly say in all other instances of church persecution, it's actually part of God's plan to result in his glory showing through more clearly. In Psalm 105, where it talks about the story of Exodus in kind of broad strokes, it gives a summary of everything that happened. It says in Psalm 105, verses 24 and 25, And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Did you catch that? God blessed them, the Israelites. He multiplied them. We we saw that last week. That's kind of where Exodus begins. It's from a, a place of blessing and multiplication, that good things are happening to the Israelites. And then who made them hate his people? He did. Who gave them the idea to be so wise, so crafty, so shrewd toward his people? God did. 
this affliction, it's not an unintended consequence in God's blessing toward his people. It's not like he was blessing them, and then Pharaoh just woke up one day, afraid of the strength and number of the Israelites, just for God to go, oh man, I didn't think about that. This Pharaoh guy, what's he going to think about this? I, I, just, I was just blessing my people. I didn't, I didn't know that Egypt was going to have a problem with this. And now, oh man, they're in chains now. What am I going to do? He's not shocked by this. He's not surprised by this. This is actually part of his plan. This is part of how he's going to make all these things work together. The affliction here, it's baked in. Not only does it not stop God's plan, it's actually part of God's plan. And I think if we'll see that correctly, if we'll understand that clearly, then this can be a great comfort for us in the midst of our own afflictions, wherever we feel them. I mean, I doubt that you're going to fall into this same slavery. You're going to have to do this same kind of work. But you may have to languish in a dead-end job to provide for your family. You may get a positive diagnosis, which in the medical community isn't as nice as it sounds. You may be ostracized for not wearing the pride ribbon this June. Those may be the afflictions of this life that you feel as part of God's people. They're real. You feel them. They hurt. They feel like you are being oppressed and afflicted from every angle. Pressed, but not yet crushed. But they won't stop. They can't stop. They can't thwart the plans that God has for his people. We'll see throughout Exodus that God has a greater plan to deliver his people from slavery. And we'll see in Scripture that he has an even greater plan to deliver his people out of the greater slavery of sin and death. But the freedom he desires for you, that's contrary to the desire that your enemies have for you. That's contrary to the desire that Satan, sin, and death has for you. What they want for you is slavery. They, they want verses 13 and 14. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I, I mean, it's hard to imagine harsher language used to describe what's happening here. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They made their lives hard with bitter service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work, in the field. And then it like repeats itself again just to make sure that you understood what was happening here. I mean, the Egyptians, they couldn't have made it harder for the Israelites. They intentionally gave them the hardest work for, for the longest hours in the, the vilest conditions, toward the harshest ends. This affliction, though, though it doesn't stop God's plan, as we'll see, though God planned it for a greater purpose, when you're in it, the affliction is brutal. It's painful. It's hard. It's terrible. The people in this text are suffering at a magnitude that we haven't yet seen in Scripture to this point. There has not been a story of affliction and suffering that has even come close to this when you're reading through the Bible, starting in Genesis and then getting to this point in Exodus. And the fight here, what's actually going on, is a fight for the control of God's people. The enemies of God's people, they want to enslave them. They want control over them. The question being asked really is, who will they follow? Who will they serve? Is their ultimate allegiance here to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Or is it to Pharaoh? 
Exodus is going to ask that question over and over. It's going to come back to this idea throughout the entire narrative, as we'll see, that the question is one of service. It's one of allegiance. It's one of worship, really. And I think you can tell that really clearly because the word used for service, the, the hard service in verse 14, is the same root that's commonly translated as worship. That worship and service come from the same word. They're a very closely tied idea. So when Moses later, as we'll see in the text, comes before Pharaoh on God's behalf to command him to let the people of Israel go, he says, let them go that they might serve God in the desert. It's the same word. It's the same service to two different masters. They can worship God in the desert or they can worship Pharaoh in the field, but there's no way for them to do both. And that's where the conflict comes from. It's whether God's people are going to serve him, whether they're going to serve Pharaoh, whether they're going to serve him or whether they're going to serve man, whether they're going to serve him or whether they're going to serve themselves. Your enemies, God's enemies, they want you to serve anyone but God. But they would really prefer if the thing that you were going to serve and worship were them. This is the same conflict that we've seen between God and his enemies all the way back in Eden. They were placed in the garden to worship God, to obey him. But Satan wants anything but that. They're told to go worship God in the desert, but Pharaoh wants anything but that. Exodus is going to make very clear as we get into it that you can only have one master. You can only serve one Lord, one God. But it's also going to make clear that there is only one true God. There is only one true master. And he's not a taskmaster. He's not a slave driver. Your enemies, Satan, sin and death, the sin that's within you, your own desires, they want to afflict you with a heavy burden. They want to thwart God's plans. They want you enslaved to them. But the master's not like that. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. He doesn't place a heavy burden on your back. He lifts the one that's already there. He won't let them thwart God's plan of salvation for his people. He won't leave his people in their slavery to sin and death and all of their crooked, terrible desires, all of their hopes to serve other masters. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom and service, slaves to Christ that he has called us, that we might serve and worship him, not in the same way that we served and worshiped Pharaoh in the field, because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Who will you serve? You only have two options. You can serve one that wants you in slavery and to place a heavier burden on your back to afflict you in pain and sin and death, or you can have freedom in Christ. We're going to see that over and over in Exodus. That gospel promise, that gospel truth, that you're suffering under a load of sin, that you are straining under the weight of the law that has been placed on your back, 
under a weight that's too heavy for you. And that God, knowing this, seeing this, he doesn't look at you and say, get stronger. He doesn't look at you and say, work out a little bit more. Then you can take this burden yourself. He doesn't look at you and think that a heavier burden will make you try harder. He looks at his people and in love for them, removes the burden of our sin from our own backs and places it on Christ's. His perfect life showed us that he can take the weight of our sin and death. And through his death and resurrection, he counts Christ taking of the burden as our own carrying the burden. You today may be afflicted by a heavy burden. You today may be in pain and oppression, persecution. You may feel the affliction of the enemy. Your sin might be weighing on you. The pain of your labor in this fallen world, the pain of your body in this fallen flesh, it might feel like that is more than you can handle today. And if that's you, I think you have to see as we look through the book of Exodus together that there is freedom for you in Christ. There's a plan to save you in Christ. There's a hope beyond the struggle in Christ. And you can hold on to these things even when the enemy afflicts you with a heavy burden. You can hold on to them even when you're oppressed to the point of extinction. That's the third aspect of the oppression of God's people in today's verses. God's people are oppressed toward extinction. You can see in those final verses, 15 through 22, that Pharaoh's plan, his plan is extinction. He says, kill them. When they're born, kill them. He starts with the midwives and says, you guys kill them. He eventually expands it to all of the people in his territory and says, when you see them, throw them in the river. The enemy here, he wants the Israelites to have no more generations. He puts a plan in place to have every Hebrew boy killed the instant that they know it's a boy. He tells the midwives, the ones who are responsible for safely bringing these boys into the world, to deny their vocation to deny whatever oaths they've probably taken, to deny the very laws of nature themselves. He says, no, 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 don't bring the life in. Snuff it out at the first possible opportunity. He wants the the men gone, the women as slaves. That's his plan to reduce the number and strength of the Israelites. And his goal is to end their generations, to make sure that this generation is the last of their generations. And when you read a text like that today in our current culture, in our current context, especially during a time when we have a baby bottle fundraiser going on out in the lobby right now for Life Choices, our local pregnancy resource center, uh, an organization that we support in our church budget, you can't read something like this and not have your minds toward, toward abortion. This is our modern parallel for Pharaoh's attempted genocide. It's our current, present day mass extinction event. The enemy's goals, his tactics, haven't actually changed much. They've just modernized. We should mourn the loss of so many boys and girls, of so many races, of so many classes. When we read these words, just as we mourn the tragedy and the death of all of these Israelite children, I think that's an obvious, that's a painful current application of what we see in this text. That the evil of Pharaoh, the plan of Pharaoh, continues today, and we're seeing it happen in real time right around us. But let me also bring up what I think is a less obvious application of this text to our current context. 
The enemy's goal for God's people is that this generation would be the last generation of God's people. It's not necessarily always to immediately snuff out what is. It's to snuff out what is next. And I think whenever you look around us in our church, there's another major application here, particularly for us here at Pleasant Grove. You'll you'll see in Exodus, and even more strongly in Deuteronomy, whenever you're reading through, that it's part of the current generation's job to make sure that they pass the faith on to the next generation, to teach them, to train them, to preach the gospel to them, to disciple them, to make sure that the work that God is doing in this time And in this place, continues on after we're gone. And the way that we have to do that is by reaching our current generation, our current younger generations for Christ, to make disciples out of them. And then also by preparing to reach the next generations, the ones that aren't here yet, the ones that aren't born yet in the same way. And church, if we're going to do that, hear me when I say we have to do that on purpose. It doesn't just happen. I've said before, I was reminded of this by the person who said it to me back when I was interviewing uh, to come here as your pastor. They told me, whenever I was in that process, I asked, what does success look like for your next pastor? They said, success in your job looks like this church continuing to exist. Success for you in this job looks like this church still being here. That me successfully being your pastor is me not being the last pastor of Pleasant Grove Baptist Church. And look, I love you all. I've been here a little over two years. I'm not planning on going anywhere. I'm not wishing I were somewhere else. I'm not wishing I was doing an easier job in a different place, in a different time, with a different people. I'm here. I want to be here. I love being here. I love you all. So hear my love for you, even as I say this, that the extinction of the gospel witness in this church has been, and in some ways still is, a very real danger for us. The further we get from that probability, the the more I think we can realize how close we actually were to ceasing to exist as a church. The reason why in the interview process they're saying, hey, hey, we're not far. You could be the last pastor if we don't focus on the right things, if we don't do the right things in the right way. And I know that's not fun to hear. I know you might not agree. I know looking around, you might not think that we're anywhere close to that point. But the reason we were peering over that cliff, I think is because we haven't always reached the next generation very well. We haven't always focused on the current generation very well. Now, thank God, again, if you look around, I think he's blessing us. He's sending us a younger generation right now that was not here very long ago. He's sending us people. He's wanting this church to continue to grow in strength and number to bless us so that we might be able to make disciples in this place and this time for his name, for his glory. That we might be a people who come together to glorify God and enjoy him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. That that's something that we do now and that we make sure continues to happen as long as we have anything to say about it. I think he's absolutely doing that for us. We are like one or two births away from our nursery being the highest concentration of people in our church. That's good news. Those are good things. 
Every time you hear a baby squawk in service, it's probably mine, and thank God. Every time you see one squirm and have to leave, that's a good thing, and thank God. That's happening. But in a lot of ways, it's happening in spite of our shortcomings. We're, we're doing the right things. We're gaining the right focus here. But guys, we still have such a long way to go. You've still got so many more miles to tread. And in some ways, it's not like you ever really reach this, right? Like, there's always a next generation. There's always another group. There's always a next people coming behind you. And I don't say this this morning to scold you. I'm not here wagging my finger and telling you all the things that we're doing wrong. If that is ever my job, it's a very small part of my job. I think it's way more my role to keep pointing ahead of us to keep showing you the map that's right in front of us, to say, hey, this is where we're headed. We can get there, I promise. We can be obedient. We can do what God has for us to do. We can thwart the plans of the enemy to end this gospel witness in Conway with us. I'm excited by that prospect. But it's my hope that, we, that when we actually try to do the things that will help us accomplish this goal, when we change some of the things we do, when we change who does the things that we do, when we focus on new priorities, when we shift our thinking on what's important, it's my hope, it's my prayer that when we do those things together as a church, that I'm not tugging on the reins to pull anyone there, that you're tugging on the reins to bring me because I'm moving too slowly. That's what we want. That's how we'll avoid extinction as God's people. Because the enemy's goal is extinction here. But he can't succeed in the face of courage. The midwives, they feared God more than Pharaoh, so they stood up to the most powerful man in the kingdom, the one whose words were law. They refused to do his bidding. They put their lives on the line here. They're perfect examples of what it looks like to fear God rather than man, no matter who that man might be. And that takes courage. And that kind of courage, it's worthy of praise and remembrance. We don't know Pharaoh's name. We don't know when this happened because we don't know Pharaoh's name. There's debate as to when the exodus occurred because it's just called Pharaoh. They're all called Pharaoh. We don't know which one. But we know Shifra. We know Pua. These two Hebrew midwives that otherwise we would have no idea who they are. Because of their courage, we know their name. That's worthy of praise. That's worthy of remembrance. The enemy can't succeed in the face of courage like that. But just because he's doomed to fail, just because Pharaoh doesn't seem like a genius here, right? Like the, he asks the midwives what's going on, and they say, I don't know. They keep having the babies before we get there. The midwives are saying they have the babies before we get there. What terrible midwives would they have to be for everyone to have a baby before they get there? They're either lying or they're just really moving as slowly as they possibly can to get toward those babies and those births. Pharaoh doesn't seem like a genius here. He is doomed to fail, but that doesn't mean that the oppression stops. Before, he only asked the midwives to take part of his plan, but now he's taking this thing worldwide. He says, okay, whole kingdom, when you see a Hebrew boy, throw him in the Nile. Everybody get in on this. Everybody be complicit in this. The oppression, it doesn't stop just because of the courageous. It doesn't stop just because God's in control. When we read our Bibles, we know things like these are going to happen. We know that until the snake crusher appears to crush his head, there's going to be conflict between the offspring of God's people 
and Satan himself. But this attempt to end the people of God, to reduce their strength and number, it actually only helps toward the end of that deliverer showing up. This week, things are bad for God's people. We'll see eventually, things actually get worse for God's people. But the expectation, it's already there. It's already built in for God to deliver his people from the schemes of Satan through a coming son, through an offspring of his people that will arrive. We'll see next week how God does that in an immediate sense through raising up Moses to lead the people out of slavery. But we'll also see throughout this book that Moses is always pointing us to someone greater than he is. The, the one, the true offspring, who will finally triumph over Satan, sin, and death. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who will give his life for our sins to lead us out of our slavery, out of our oppression, and into his presence. There is a balm in Gilead who can heal the sin-sick soul, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather with your people, to, to sing your word, to pray your word, to preach your word, to hear your gospel. Thank you for giving us the story of Exodus to show us what slavery to sin looks like, to show us the lengths to which you will go to save your people from their oppression, from their slavery to sin. Thank you for calling us to more than what you've already given us for calling us into higher, further, deeper. We know that you've placed us in this place and this time for a purpose. We know the enemy wants us to be the last ones. But help for us to be obedient, for us to do the things, to, to think the ways that we should. Help for us to focus on your gospel in ourselves, in our lives, to be changed by that, to be transformed by that. And help for us to preach that to everyone around us. That though they are slaves to sin, they don't have to be. We thank you for that hope and that promise this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.